Hi there, and great to have you along with me, Cleon and Ianlone, for another podcast edition of the RTE Radio 1 Spoken Stories Independence New Fiction Collection. Each podcast treats us to a new story from a commissioned collection of short fiction, read by its author or by a guest reader, with you, the listener, in mind. The collection is called Spoken Stories Independence, as each writer started out on their story by considering what independence might conjure up for them and where it might take them today, 100 years after Ireland's War of Independence. Roisin O'Donnell now tells us about her story, Present Perfect. We've all been spending a lot more time at home this past year. I thought about home as the cornerstone of independence. Your own kitchen, your own pictures on the walls, space to think. I thought about the challenges faced by people who find themselves homeless, the loss of independence, of autonomy. Loss of home causes a rupture in a person's narrative. It impacts on an individual's freedom, their sense of self. And when you're robbed of that, how does that affect your confidence? In my story, a young teacher, Kira, is living in a Dublin hotel with her two children. And she's very much internalised this judgmental, negative view of herself. The story unfolds over a single October day filled with unforeseen challenges for Kira. It's about the harshness or the kindness of strangers and about how the embers of an independent spirit can maybe start to be rekindled. Now, let's hear Present Perfect by Roisin O'Donnell, read by Siobhan McSweeney. Rabbit scarves, grubby mittens, coats, mint green, dinosaur print, oh, bloody zips. Somehow I've managed to bundle the kids into their lairs and we've made it out of the hotel room, down the narrow back staircase, out the side entrance, into the alley. Sophie kicks through damp leaves, piled in drifts. Out of the shadows on the quays, the bright October morning is almost blinding. Passing the main entrance of the Eden Hotel, light reflects off windscreens and the wet pavements. High tide, the liffy glints with tiny waves. Round the corner, onto O'Connell Street, past McDonald's, and O'Connell with his four scowling angels, way up ahead, angled to the curb, ready to pull away, a yellow and blue double-decker. The seven o'clock bus, oh, we can't miss it. I've got the banjaxed buggy folded under one arm, backpack rattling. On the other side, Ella is jolting against my hip, chewing on the mane of her lion. We're running through the salty seaweed reek of the river, through exhaust fumes, car horns, sirens. Sophie charges ahead, swinging her Paw Patrol lunchbox, stomping in puddles, welly heels flashing electric blue. Just on time, we get on to the 103. The doors wheeze shut behind us. Sophie spins round. Mammy, where's my homework? I'm out of breath again. I'm so unfit. 
and these cheap old leopard print pumps were a daft idea, the first thing I could grab from the cluttered mini wardrobe this morning. I've a firm hold on Sophie's hood as the bus lurches off. Homework? You're only three. My homework, Sophie begins to warble. An immaculate woman in a smart black poncho looks up from her mobile as I'm jamming the buggy into the luggage holder. Oh, my face burns. I realise too late. None of us have brushed our teeth. Staggering down the bus, we collapse into a seat near the back. In the front pocket of my scruffy red parka, two miraculous boxes of raisins. Here, I hand a box to each of the kids. Honey, we'll talk about your homework when we get off the bus. Sophie huffs. Ella leans her head back against my chest, chewing her raisins, hugging her lion, studying her reflection on the scratched perspex window. The raisins get us as far as the university. Sophie skips up the oak-lined avenue towards the creche at the side of the campus car park. One of her hair clips glitters to the footpath and her dark hair goes flying from its pigtails. In her buggy, Ella giggles and claps. She's so bloody gorgeous. The morning light catching her blonde eyelashes. She points at Sophie, waves and babbles. Just looking at her sends such a sharp pang of love across my chest, caught suddenly by that scratch of fear. Ella isn't speaking. Ella, who was born in late December by emergency section, who I carried, swaddled in her white blanket into that first hotel room. Her two-year check-up with the community nurses at four this afternoon And she isn't speaking. That late night Google search last week made my throat tighten. By two years of age, a child should have at least ten words. She doesn't have one. I remember Ryan's thin lips. Single mums tend not to do too well, you know, Kira. You're going to regret this. Near the creche now, Sophie stops Mammy, you forgot to do my homework. Shit, I thought I'd get away with it. Lucy said it yesterday. We've to do a picture of our house and we can use anything we want. I wanted to paint. I kneel in front of her. You've your lovely twistables, honey. We don't really have space in the hotel for paint. Her brown eyes seek mine. Her lips quiver. Her cheeks are getting pinker. I must be the stupidest parent on the planet. Of course she wants to paint. Didn't her paintings used to cover every inch of the fridge and the kitchen door? Didn't she used to paint the garden walls with wavering rainbows? I can see the emotion rising, ready to flood her tiny frame. Two of my Japanese students, Yuri and Nikki, wave from the granite benches beside the creche. Yuri puts a hand to her heart, signalling, isn't she cute? But you won't think it's cute when Sophie launches into a full-blown tantrum. I have to teach a class in five minutes. I can't deal with a meltdown right now. I told myself I was leaving for the kids' sake. I was getting us to a better place. But all I seem to have achieved is forgotten lunchboxes, 
tights that hammock too short below the crotch, making the children walk like cowboys, and Sophie's cheerful reminders, you're the only mammy who doesn't have a car. We'll do this homework if it kills me. Okay, I'm pressing my lips to Sophie's slammy cheeks. We'll paint, okay? We'll sort it out. Mid-morning, the light has changed. Clouds have crept in, darkening the tutorial room. Bright strip lighting catches the posters of English verbs and the photos of Dublin tourist attractions. Molly with her wheelbarrow, the halfpenny bridge at night. Shouts and laughter volley from the concourse below where students gather to smoke and chat under the flaming Virginia creeper. I've always adopted a persona as a teacher, a chat-show version of myself, all cheerful anecdotes. It's been weirdly helpful this last while. All these mornings I've stumbled into this room light-headed with worry. Oh, it's been a refuge. From rehearsed conversations, slips of wilting paper in their hands, I've learned details about the lives of my students. Imagined other worlds. The Star Festival in Tanabata. Hopes and dreams on fluttering silk flags. Black swans circling a Sao Paulo lake. Tokyo skyscrapers. Chocolate pizza. Salty olives. Sticky Arabic dates. Today, even the student stories aren't enough. I'm rambling through a lesson on the third conditional, the impossible tense because you can't change the past. If I hadn't missed the train, I would have arrived on time. If you'd called, I would have answered. The students working away on these made-up scenarios, giving me a minute to scroll through daft. I only find houses that have already turned us away. Three hours till Ella's checkup. On the bus with the pair of them, back to the hotel for lunch. I've cracked out the well-chewed first words board book. What's this, Ella? Cop? Teddy? Train? Ella just smiles, occasionally obliging with a oh, ed, or um, ain sound. Her silence is all my fault. All these months, I've remembered to try and smile, but forgotten to speak. A creeping silence has cloaked me, hidden me. In the hotel room, I rarely chat to the kids the way I used to, and I don't sing anymore. Ella has been soaked in my silence for 18 months, and now she's content and smiley, but she's no use for words. I can see what's coming. Raised eyebrows, clicked byros. A hotel. Forms, and yet more questions. I need to get Ella speaking, even just a few words. I'm dousing her with language, narrating her life. Ella's on the bus, going to see a nice nurse later. I'd always presumed quietness was just part of her personality, making her seem younger than she is. 
Still the little stranger I first saw lifted from behind that blue surgical curtain. She's forever busy, charging around, a bum-waggling duckling, moving objects without a sound. A little poltergeist. What does she even need words for? Are there words in her dreams? Mammy! Sophie says, tapping out a rhythm on the bus rail. When are we doing my homework? God, I'd almost forgotten. Paint. Of a tenor to last till Thursday. All these buses. And the laundrette. And the damn burgers, chips, Chinese takeaways. Oh, I wish I could cook us something myself. These days, simple addition and subtraction makes me feel physically sick. I'm on it, Sophie, don't worry. Mammy will sort it out. It's only as I'm reaching to take the packets of noodles from the hotel press, I cop they aren't there. I've taken to shopping in Aldi once a week, lugging back their rice cakes, cereal bars and fun-sized apples. But this week, I thought I could make last week's grocery stretch. Time is tight if we're to make this appointment. Nothing for it. We're having to traipse down to the Eden stuffy ground floor restaurant again. One of the places I hate most on earth. Waiting staff in maroon waistcoats look right through us. I'm sure my hair isn't even brushed. Sophie, in a wild costume change, is now wearing her fairy wings and Bob the Builder hard hat. We've been queuing for ages. Ella fussing, Sophie breathing on the counter, making clouds on the stainless steel. I've handed over eight fifty for a cheese sandwich, a banana and a small tea. I'm being a zebra. Sophie tugs my arm as I'm carrying the tray over to a window table. What animal are you, Mammy? Just a sec. I'm clipping Ella into a greasy high chair. Outside, the keys are bustling, tied out. The liffy walls are dripping green. You could be a rhino, Sophie says. Or a giraffe. All around us, grey and black suit shoulders hunker at laptops, having earnest discussions over lattes and untouched baguettes. Times like this, I can be almost dizzy. It's as if our table has been teleported from another dimension. One minute we were happily making lunch in our kitchen in Ashtown, kettle bubbling, eggs sizzling, something cheesy and upbeat on the radio, Sophie's paintings tacked to the door, alphabet magnets on the fridge. Then suddenly, boom, here we are, right in the middle of a corporate lunch. Don't like this, Mammy. Sophie starts sprinkling grated cheese onto the carpet, feeding an invisible flock. She's picked up on my stress. I swear she's a seismograph, registering the smallest quake and amplifying it. Come on, honey. Sandwiches make you big and strong. Only like that other cheese, Mammy. Look, I've propped my phone against the salt shaker. Coco Melon keeps the kids quiet for about three minutes before one of the maroon waistcoats appears at my elbow. We've had a request you turn that down. He avoids my eyes and straightens his cuff shirts. It's disturbing the other tables. 
The kids are quiet as we go up the escalator at Connolly Station. Both of them are peering through the glass roof into the paling sky. It's nearly a year since we made this 20-minute train jaunt to Ashtown. The medical practice is just round the corner from where we used to live. Even the names of the stations are bringing me back. Drumcondra, Drimconruk, Broombridge, Drihid Broom. Jumping off the train at Ashtown, up the steps and over the juddering footbridge, I'm in a sort of trance. Shortly after four, we step into a consulting room plastered with peeling Disney murals. A bright lipsticked nurse introduces herself as Jessica. Now, Mum, she says, who have we here? Sophie hides behind my legs. I'm taking off Ella's coat, hugging her, inhaling her sweet baby warmth. At the nurse's instruction, I help Ella step waveringly onto the scales. Nurse Jessica takes a note of her height, puts a tape around Ella's head and makes a note on her file. She puts the tape around Ella's head again, puts her pen down. Mum, I have to tell you, her head is measuring very large. The world falls silent. I feel naked. Seen. Caught out. Have I spent this entire time worrying about the wrong thing? This whole time I've fretted over finding a place to rent, boiling noodles, taking pips out of satsumas, meeting the milestones. Was something unbelievably worse hiding in plain sight? Uh, what, what does that mean? I might have asked the nurse twice. She takes out the tape measure again. Everything is happening in slow motion. Sophie starts moaning about snacks and, oh God, it's definitely in the 90th percentile, the nurse says. It just means you might have trouble finding her a hat that fits. A hat? There is another pause. The blood comes rushing to my head. I might have trouble finding her a hat? Now pure instinct is taking over. I'm grabbing Ella's coat, reaching for Sophie's hand. The trembling is embarrassing, but I don't seem able to stop it. Uh, we have to go, I tell the nurse. Something's come up. I think of those business people at their lunches. Urgent. Nurse Jessica looks as if she has frozen badly during a game of musical statues or something. Her pursed lips make a perfect dog's arse, fuchsia pink. As I'm wrestling Sophie into her coat, Nurse Jessica is suffusing politeness. Is everything okay, Mum? Did we not want to have the child's two-year language test? I might have said, no, your grand, leave it. Or I might have said, the child will speak when she's good and ready. Piss off. Honestly, I'm not sure which it was. Here it is again. The flight instinct that's got me this far. And the thing that really gets me is, when I left Ryan, I just knew it had to be now. Now.
I took the clothes on the washing line, nothing else. If I'd gone into the house to pack anything, Ryan would have heard me, so I had to leave now from this garden down the side passage away from the house. Sophie was playing, her voice sing-song in the golden slant of the late June evening, while Ella lay on our tartan blanket gurgling at the clouds. Blow bubbles floated across the garden. I pulled clothes off the line, my hands working fast. Pajama bottoms, faded paisley print, remembering our first date. Chips at Hoth. A walk along the pier, tied sails rattling against boat masts made an eerie music. Caught in a sudden downpour, back in his flat, peeling off each other's drenched shirts until we reached bare skin. Three months later, the reckless thrill of a hasty shoestring wedding. Baby t-shirts, sunshine, rainbow, unicorn. I forgot the peg bag, letting the washing pegs fall, leaving a pink and purple trail, bright haphazard stitches across the uncut grass. Part of me wanted to pretend this wasn't happening. Moments earlier, he jotted his chin out, jabbing his finger at me. You're fucking insane. His pupils dilated, his jaw clicked. I had stood paralysed as he stormed into the house. I grabbed the last item from the washing line. A toddler hoodie, purple, size three to four. Sunlight was slipping from the garden. I called Sophie and she toddled over to me. Where are we going? On a secret adventure. Forcing a smile, I clutched the starchy dry washing under one arm and with my free arm I lifted Ella up from the blanket. It had to be now. Now. Not because of the danger Ryan could step out into the garden with that look of pale anger on his face. Not because the berating could quickly escalate. Not because I'd spent the last five years keeping forensic track of knives, sharp scissors, rope. Not because of any of these things. I had to leave at that moment because in a few minutes he could step back into the garden smiling, calling me sweetheart, handing me a bunch of petrol station flowers and the adrenaline could dissipate. And I might have thought it was all in my head and it was all okay after all. His moods were sudden unpredictable. I used to think I could pinpoint the exact spot on the kitchen tiles where he was standing when his expression changed. I could have chalked the outline of his shoes. At some point I stopped trying to engage in pleasant conversation. It hits me. This is where the silence began. Not in the hotel room, but in our house, where I walked on fractured glass. Nothing. Not the nights in the hotels, or the rice cake breakfasts, or the bloody noodles, or the constant searching for a home. Nothing has been as bad as that. And I'm 
doing my best. This is what I want to tell Nurse Jessica and everyone else. Things are going to get better. Just give me a chance. I'm doing my best. Walking away from the family medical centre, the surf-like pulse of traffic fills the pause inside my head. I'm almost waiting for Nurse Jessica and a horde of clipboard-wielding officials to come chasing after us. I can imagine Ryan's smirk. Running away again, typical. And, for the first time ever, I don't give a hoot. Oot, says Ella. Oot. <laughs> I didn't realise I'd spoken out loud. Yeah, hoot, I tell her. Mammy doesn't give a hoot. Mammy, says Sophie, all seriousness in her yellow hard hat and fairy wings. Did you forget about my homework? No, love, I didn't forget. Come on. I have something to show you first. Down the road from the medical centre, the Royal Canal lies just minutes away from our old house. Ducks, Sophie shouts. The canal carries the colours of the autumn sunset scribbled across the water like Sophie's pictures. Right now, my only plan is to let the kids watch the mallards. We'll throw them some Liga biscuits or maybe some raisins. In a while, we'll head back to the station. Back at the Eden, I'll swipe a load of tourist brochures from the lobby. In our room, I'll spread the brochures out on the bed. I'll announce, guess what, Sophie? We're going to make a collage. It's even cooler than paint. I'll leave the curtains open. As the sky blues with deepening evening, our reflections will sit over the city lights. I'll cut out shapes from the brochures and hand them to Sophie to print stick onto a page from one of my old notebooks. Sophie will jump around excitedly before kneeling and drawing what looks to be black sunflowers on either side for a picture. Those are the house spiders, she'll say. It won't be a picture of where we're living at the moment. The hotel with its seven floors, dusty windows and talking lift. It won't be our old house either. The red brick semi-D with its stained glass front door which glowed pastel bright in the dusk. Still, it will be a picture of a home. And in the morning... We'll be waiting at the bus stop, hair clean, teeth brushed. Sophie, dressed as a unicorn with her sparkly tutu and fluorescent wellies, Ella hugging her lion. Sophie will wave her picture as she bounds onto the 103. Look, she'll show the driver, my homework. Well now, the driver a woman with a friendly face and a short blonde bob will wink at me and give Sophie a thumbs up. Aren't you an absolute legend?
There you heard Siobhan McSweeney reading the story Present Perfect by Roisin O'Donnell. Next time on Spoken Stories Independence, Fiona Shocknessy reads On Being Sophia by Mike McCormack. And you can enjoy all the new fiction featured on Spoken Stories Independence wherever you get your podcast on rte.ie forward slash culture and on the RTE Spoken Stories website. From me, Cleon and Ian Lun, thank you for listening. Thank you.